Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! A classic album showcases great songwriting and impeccable musicianship. But more importantly, it sounds as fresh today as it did when it came out. One album that fits that description? Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. We'll conduct a classic album dissection of Songs in the Key of Life and review new records by electronic duo Daft Punk and retro soul singer Duffy. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for a classic album dissection. That's right, Greg. We wanted to revisit one of our favorite album dissections, Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. We first aired this discussion in 2006. Now, and it's hard to believe this, really, the album is about to be 35 years old. And Jim, one of the reasons we deem it a classic is that Songs in the Key of Life never seems to get old. When it was released in 1976, it was a number one album, like most of Stevie's releases in the 70s. In addition to that, his best-selling album of all time, more than 10 million sold. In a lot of ways, Jim, I think the signature album of his career. When people think Stevie Wonder, what's he done? He's had a ton of hits, but I think this is the first album people think of when they think of Stevie Wonder. Songs in the Key of Life. We're going to look at it in greater detail, find out what made it tick. Well, the music tells a story, Greg, and that's the place to start. Here is a, a brief montage of some of the songs from Songs in the Key of Life. We'll be playing more later, but this will give you a sense of what makes this album special. That was just a sampling of some of the 21 songs that Stevie Wonder stuffed onto Songs in the Key of Life when he was making that album over two years 
the album finally came out in 1976, that music still holds up. When you hear that opening horn fanfare for Sir Duke, it still blows people's minds. Jim, I, I know from personal experience, having played that particular song for some eighth grade classes that I go speak to over the years, their heads perk up <laughs> when they hear that song. They go, what yeah. was that? Where can I get that? It's, it's suddenly like this revelation that this guy, Stevie Wonder, made this amazing music 30 years ago. And, and here we are looking back on it. It's important to recognize when this album was made. The mid-70s, Stevie Wonder, at that point, was already the biggest pop artist in the land. He was coming off a four-album run that I still think is one of the best four and soon-to-be five-album runs in music history. From 1972 to 1974, he made Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Inner Visions, Fulfilling This's first finale, all of them, Jim, masterpieces as far as I'm concerned. Then It's considered his classic period. Oh, my God. He was making amazing work. Coming off of Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, which was kind of the emancipation address for artists at Motown. Before they'd sort of been locked into this production line at Motown and Barry Gordy, the songwriters wrote the songs, the performers performed the songs, the yeah. house band was the band on every, on every song. Marvin Gaye sort of freed himself from those strictures on what's going on and sort of cleared the way for Stevie Wonder to be his own boss in the studio, make the records the way he wanted to, write the songs the way he wanted to, produce the songs the way he wanted to, play, in many cases, the songs entirely himself, become a one-man band in the studio. He was on a remarkable role. And then in 1975, he decides to clear the decks again. Mm -hmm. He'd been working with these two guys, Robert Magulov and Malcolm Cecil, and just said, okay, I'm parting ways with you guys. I'm moving on. He ditched his band, started hiring some new people. You're going to hear from one of them in the next few minutes. These young guys, some of whom had not really had a lot of experience, bringing them into his new team and recording what would be the landmark album of his career, Songs in the Key of Life. Yeah, I, I have to confess, when we were talking, Greg, about what we were going to do for our classic album dissection, I was dubious when you suggested Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. I respect Stevie Wonder more than I, I really deeply admire him, and especially Songs in the Key of Life. I mean, call me weird and perverse, but after Songs in the Key of Life, Wonder's classic period ended, and he started making albums like Secret Lives of Plants, you know, where it was basically New Age Muzak with yeah. a lot of synthesizer. I kind of prefer that <laughs> because I'm a moog freak. I yeah. love what Wonder did with the synthesizer. You know, Songs in the Key of Life has some classic singles, but it also has some sappiness. Something like, Isn't She Lovely? You dig into the history of the album, you realize he's talking about his baby girl, mm -hmm. Aisha, who, who had just recently been born. And obviously, there's one or two lyrical nods. It suddenly gives you a whole new perspective. But Stevie, he's not a very good lyricist. And I went back and I, I dug up the original 1976 Rolling Stone record review. Vince Aletti, who I think is one of the most insightful writers ever, he really gave a lukewarm review to Songs in the Key of Life mm -hmm. in December 76 in Rolling Stone because the lyrics were so dumb. I, I quote, Wonder's lyrics aren't clever or particularly intelligent, but at their best, they're instinctive, straightforward, and touchingly sincere. Unfortunately, at their worst, they're convoluted, awkward, atrociously rhymed, and tangled up in their pretensions to poetic style. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can argue. It's never been about the lyrics with Stevie. It's about that voice, which is one of the most expressive in all of rock or pop history, and also about his arranging talents. I went in and read the history of where this album was coming from. One thing that really helped me understand the album is that Wonder had had a serious, almost fatal automobile accident 
in August of 73. He was driving in a car and a truck in front of them, a log came rolling off it, went right through the windshield, smashed into his head, put him in a coma for some time and resulted in a permanent loss of his sense of smell. So here you have this incredible man who is is deprived of his sight, no longer has his smell, which of course affects his taste. The only sense that Stevie Wonder really has left is touching and hearing, mm-hmm. you know. And he makes this incredible album called Songs in the Key of Life. It says right in the title, I'm happy to be alive. This guy is just glad that he survived these things. He's looking at the things around him that are good, the loves of his life, for his daughter, for his significant other, and music. So it's hard to be cynical about it, kind of the slightness of some of the lyrics, the cheery optimism, when this guy is just lucky to be alive at all. Absolutely. I think that's the beauty of this record. It Notice the chord structures. It's almost all major chords. He simplified his music in a lot of ways. A lot of people lament, and I think Vince Aletti was among them, in a lot of ways this is a less complex album than those earlier masterworks that I yeah. cited. There was protest songs on those earlier records. There, there were darker melodies. There's nothing like that on songs in the key of life. It's all up. It's all kind of major keys, and there's beautiful melodies throughout this record, and I think you nailed it on the head, Jim. This is a joyous record, and coming where it did in the middle of the 70s, on the cusp of punk, the end of the Nixon administration, the country was in a really low state of mind at that point. It was an amazing document to come out when it did and saying what it did. These songs address everything from childhood and I Wish to childbirth and Isn't She Lovely to love in a song like Knocks Me Off My Feet, to his just sheer joy at being a fan in Sir Duke. I mean, just, yeah. uh, just the joy Loving of that music, music as you're saying. Well, and, and it took forever to make. <laughs> That's part yeah. of the story. Two years in the making, hundreds of songs to choose from, recorded on both coasts. This was a massive effort. So to tell us more about the recording process is one of the men who experienced it. Let's hear some of our 2006 conversation with musician Greg Fillingaines. Greg Fillingaines was the man hired to play keyboards on the album, including Fender Rhodes, the uh, electric acoustic piano that Fender, the guitar people, made. Though, of course, Stevie himself is a keyboardist. Fillingaines has since played with countless musicians, including Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, and Quincy Jones. But Songs in the Key of Life was his first job. We asked him about this experience. So you were how old when uh, Stevie hired you? Just before I turned 19. But here's the other side of that perspective. It was just before I turned 19, but it was just before he turned 26. Right. <laughs> I mean, 25, rather. He was a baby, too. It was like he wasn't even 25 yet. He'd had a substantial career already at that point. Yeah. Though. Oh, unbelievable. He yeah. was the king. He was on a roll at that point. I mean, those four albums that he'd made uh, right in a row there. Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Intervisions, Fulfilling as his first finale. Absolutely. 72 to 74. Did you sort of have a sense of what was going on, that he was making this massive, you know, this is going to be the biggest project yet? No, I had a sense that it was going to be really big because it's taken so darn long. Yeah. <laughs> How long um, were the sessions? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there are sessions and then there's Stevie time. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like uh, we didn't have like formal sessions. It's just like you went to the studio and that's where you were. Did he have a grand plan? I guess that was the question that Greg Cott was asking before. Uh, We're talking to Greg Fillingaines, who played on Songs in the Key of Life. Did Stevie have a grand concept, a grand plan, or was it a creative thing that was just, it was uh, developing as you guys went along during these endless recording sessions? Well, uh, if anything, it was more of the the latter, you know, Mm -hmm. that things developed. He gathered inspiration from a lot of different areas, the band being one of the main parts, I would say, but he had a ton of songs as well. Mm-hmm. He uh, 
as notable for being able to play just about anything he wants, any instrument he wants, uh, more than competently, and has made some tracks completely on his own. And it must have been daunting for you, especially, Greg, as a keyboard player. You know, here's maybe the premier keyboardist on the planet at that point, and certainly the most celebrated, asking you to do keyboard parts on his record. Uh, what kind of direction was he giving you guys? Well, he was pretty specific. What I loved about learning from him was that he had or has this tremendous ability to understand the essence of any genre and and translate that back in his own way, but make it believable at the same time. And, you know, he probably got that from Ray, because Ray, I think, was the same way. From Ray Charles. But, uh, yeah, you know, I adapted that mentality from him. At the same time, he knew that I understood him, that I understood him musically, I understood how he thinks. You know, I wasn't able to do everything he could do at that time, but, you know, I think he trusted me more than I trusted myself at the time because, yeah, I was pretty nervous. It was mm-hmm. it was an incredible thing. You know, I mean, I remember, um, uh, for instance, uh, when we were working on uh, the song Saturn, he was using at this time this uh, this prototype, really, of uh, an instrument from Yamaha called the Dream Machine. It's this huge white thing, and it could house a family of eight. I mean, it was huge. <laughs> and the two of us are sitting on this grand, grandiose thing, and we're playing these parts, and it's just me and him, and he's just sitting there bobbing his head, and I started bobbing my head too. It was just like the two of us, and it was really very intimate and very special. Through the ages, all great men have taught. Truth and happiness just can't be bought. Or so. And you guys were both sitting on this huge instrument. Yeah. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing. W- what was to say that he wouldn't just do it himself and overdub all this stuff? Why why did he want another musician in, uh, involved here? I guess to give, you know, someone like me the experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to remember, he's he already worked on like ninety five percent of it. Right. You know, the, the the album is such an explosion of, of optimism, uh, or big parts of it are. Do you think that he also wanted, you know, jaded at the age of 26, he hadn't done all this stuff. Did he want the perspective of a 19-year-old kid for whom this is, like, the greatest thing in the universe, and you're there and you're fresh? And So even though he could have played your parts, there might have been a vibe coming through in the way that you played them? Oh, I would imagine so. It, it was certainly gracious on his part. But it was it was also a way of getting me acclimated to the whole uh, recording process. Talk about Isn't She Lovely, Greg. You, you played on that track as well, right? Mm-hmm. Where did you fit in there in terms of what he envisioned for it? I did the Rhodes part. I mean, something he could have easily done, but he wanted me to do it. He, uh, he did the drums and the synthesizer bass and string parts, the orchestrations, all that stuff, mm-hmm. on synthesizer. And uh, but he had me do the roads. Well, obviously he had parts in mind. What what was it about Stevie's parts? Uh, I mean, you've played with so many musicians, Greg. 
Is there a distinguishing feature that Stevie had in the way he wrote keyboard parts? Absolutely. Well, you know, his whole approach is basically unorthodox, you know, but he draws from a lot of sources as far as different genres of music. And so he's able to weave them in a, in a very unique way, and that spells out his musical DNA, you know. But um, the part to uh, Isn't She Lovely is just the chords. I mean, you, you know, that's pretty straight ahead. people talk about this as kind of being his grand pop record. Everything was kind of major chord based and there was a lot of really catchy choruses. How do you sort of view this record against his other work uh, during that period when, when Stevie could do no wrong basically? Well, this was the culmination really of everything that he had built prior to this. I've often said that it's the <laughs> and I don't mean this in a bad way but it's the last great Stevie album. It's the last great complete Stevie album. Mm-hmm. You know, the album since then, he's had great moments, but this was the last complete where everything was just unbelievable. Every cut was a gem, you know. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you just one more question to wrap up, Greg. Do you have a particular favorite on the record, uh, one that you may or may not have played on? It's not a favorite, it's one of my favorites, and I did happen to play on it. It's uh, Joy Inside My Tears. You know, that song just absolutely tears me up. So deep and heavy and, and passionate, you know. I've always come to the conclusion that but is the way of asking for permission to lay something heavy on one's head. I feel that lasting moments are coming. Greg, thanks for uh, taking time out to do this. It was a pleasure. Thanks for asking. We'll continue our classic album dissection of Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder after a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later on, Greg and I will review the new records by the French duo Daft Punk and British soul singer Duffy.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And you've been listening to our classic album dissection of Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. This discussion previously aired in 2006, but the album is about to celebrate its 35th anniversary. Yes, Jim, Songs in the Key of Life is absolutely a landmark album when you consider the range of its sound. But the circumstances surrounding the making of the album were also really unique. You talk about Motown Records giving Stevie Wonder two entire years to make this record. And he took his time and he loaded it up with music. Two full LPs plus an EP. So that makes it really difficult to pinpoint one favorite track, but we're going to try, right? Absolutely. With 21 songs, you can go in a lot of directions. But as I said earlier, I'm uh, being the the cynical punk rock type. I I, kind of scoff at some of the more optimistic moments, although now that I'm a father myself, isn't she lovely means more to me. Uh, You made a statement before that you didn't think there were any of those edgy protest songs or or those, you know, city in turmoil tunes like Superstition or Living for the City that had come earlier in Wonder's classic period, and I beg to differ, and I'm going to play one of those. Pastime Paradise, I think, is a very sneaky protest song or, or bemoaning song, one of the saddest moments on an otherwise incredibly unrelentingly upbeat album, and, and I think it's one of Wonder's best tunes ever. I hear this as him looking at people who are walking through life in a daze, not appreciating the good things, which is how it fits in with the rest of songs in the key of life, but also not taking action uh, against the bad things. It's sort of a bridge uh, after he sets up the song, and it's, it, it, it has this kind of creepy vibe where he starts to list in a really interesting way all the problems around him. Dissipation, race relations, consolation, segregation, dispensation, isolation, exploitation, mutilation, mutations, miscreation, confirmation to the evils of the world. That's how he ends that list. He's not celebrating these things. He could be seen as complaining about them. I think ultimately what he's doing is telling people to take action against them. Lift yourself up and out and move against these things because the next time he does that list, it's done very differently. Acclamation, world salvation, vibrations, stimulation. Get off your butt and do something. <laughs> That's what I hear Stevie Wonder saying. And kids, if you uh, are, if we're introducing you to songs in the key of life and you hear this song as I play it and it sounds really familiar, let me tell you why. The key sample for Coolio's huge hit, Gangster's Paradise, in the 90s, one of the biggest hip-hop hits of the 90s, uh, is based on this song. That's where the sample came from. Here's the original and the best, Pastime Paradise by Stevie Wonder. Men spending most of their lives living in a pastime paradise. Men spending most of their lives living in a pastime paradise. Men wasting most of their time glorifying days long gone behind. Men wasting most of their days in remembrance of ignorance so dispraise. Tell me who are them? Dispensation, isolation, exploitation, mutilation, mutation, miscreation, confirmation to the evils of the world. And spending most of their lives living in the future paradise. 
savior of love will come to stay. Tell me who of them will come to be? How many of them are you and me? Proclamation, aspiration, consolation, integration. Verification of revelation, acclamation, world salvation, vibration, stimulation, confirmation to peace of the world. We've been spending most of our lives living in the past time paradise. We've been spending most of our lives living in past time paradise. They've been spending most of their lives living in a future. Pastime Paradise, you're right, Jim, one of the classics from Songs in the Key of Life. Even that one, he made, manages to turn optimistic, though. I think Absolutely. the mood of this album is very up, and that, uh, you know, the way he uses the Afro-Caribbean percussion and those synth strings in there, evoking another song, I, I think Eleanor Rigby from the Beatles, mm. the way he arranges those. The song I'm going to go for is the song As. Here is Stevie in jazz mode. He basically tours the stylistic universe on this record. He plays everything. Afro-Caribbean music, soul, funk, funk and soul, yeah. rock. I mean, he's, he's touching on it all. Gospel. There are elements of jazz and gospel, especially in this song, and I love it for the way it came together. And you can hear very much the vibe in the room when you listen to this track. Stevie could basically, as Greg Fillingane said, could play basically everything himself. But he didn't want to on this record. He wanted to have those musicians in the room with him so that he could fire off them in a live setting. And, and As was very much recorded live. You can hear the essence of this impromptu band he put together. Herbie Hancock didn't play a whole lot of stuff on this record, but on this track he is all over it on that Rhodes keyboard. And his Rhodes and Stevie's voice are really the linchpin of this song, the interaction between those two instruments. Meanwhile, you've got this incredible Baseline played by one Nathan Watts, who I think is the unsung hero of this record. He is the guy who sort of is the glue on 75% of this record. You can also hear this guitarist, Dean Parks, and there's a drummer by the name of Greg Brown, and they're basically firing off Stevie and this wonderful, optimistic lyric about love. I mean, love that is going to last and transcend time. It, it sounds like a hokey sentiment on paper, but the way Stevie sings it, makes you believe. The key moment for me in this track is that Herbie Hancock solo in the middle of the song where he does something really incredible with his right hand. There's like a, a tremolo part in it, and you'll hear it in the middle of the solo, where he really kind of dirties up, grimes it up a little bit. And all of a sudden, Stevie's voice from, goes from this very smooth vocal approach to this kind of gritty gospel feel. And mm. then he overdubs a whole bunch of Stevies in the background <laughs> to give it this really happening gospel feel. So this, Wall you of can Stevies. sort of see, 
yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I think one of the quintessential tracks in his career, and certainly one of the centerpieces of Songs in the Key of Life. It's as on Sound Opinions. As the day I know I'm living but tomorrow But make me the past for that I mustn't fear For I'll know deep in my mind the love of me I've left behind Cause I'll be loving you Stevie Wonder with Az on Sound Opinions, wrapping up our classic album dissection of the 1976 release Songs in the Key of Life. 
To comment on our dissection or anything in the rock world, call 888-859-1800 and we'll put it on the air. You can also email us at interact at soundopinions.org or chat with us on Facebook and Twitter. Next up, Jim and I are going to review new records by the electronic group Daft Punk and soul singer Duffy. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions. That is Duffy with the opening track from her second album, Endlessly. The song is called My Boy. Greg, Duffy burst onto the scene a couple of years ago as a peer of Amy Winehouse and as yet another contender in the uh, neo-soul movement that the Brits were giving us at that time. The story goes that Amy and Duffy grew up in a very remote small coastal town in Wales with only two sources of cultural inspiration. Her parents' LP collection and tapes, VHS tapes, of the 60s television show Ready, Steady, Go. She was born to sing in that wonderful Petula Clark Dusty Springfield style. She was noticed by the wonderful independent label in the UK, Rough Trade, who paired her with Bernard Butler to make some of her early recordings. Now comes album number two. The first one, Rock Fairy, made a big splash in 2008. Not as big a splash as Amy Winehouse, but pretty impressive. That that single, Mercy, was a hit pretty much worldwide. Album number two, she goes to uh, New York and to London and records with Albert Hammond. Not the Strokes guitarist, but his father, who's a singer and songwriter uh, of some renown on the New York music scene going back decades. What did she produce? We're going to give our opinions on this new album, Endlessly by Duffy, in a minute. But first, let's hear the track that is the uh, big single from this record, Well, 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 on Sound Opinions. Well, well, well. Well, well, well. Well, well, well. 
Well, well, well from Duffy, her second album, Endlessly. Jim, I have been generally underwhelmed by the wave of Brit soul pop singers that have emerged in sort of the post-Amy Winehouse era over there. Even Adele? Adele is is clearly the best of the bunch. I would say she's got more guts in her voice and more personality, and I think personality is what's really lacking in the Duffy song mode right now. Her first album had a couple of catchy moments on it, but the thing that kept popping up to me on that first album, and even more so on Endlessly, is the quality of her voice. You referenced Dusty Springfield, Petula Clark as influences. I'm hearing more Lulu or more maybe Betty Boop. I don't know. It's <laughs> this pipsqueak voice. It's really hard yeah. to take over the long yeah. haul. It just grates on me after a while. The album's split evenly between ballads and up-tempo tracks. I think the up-tempo tracks in general work better than the uh, slower ones. Well, Well, Well is by far the best song in the album, yeah. in part because I think she's got the roots backing her up on it. Amir Questlove Thompson put some giddy-up in her step, and she's got some of that finger-wagon attitude going on in that song, and I like that. I wish she'd brought yeah. that out more the rest of the album. But otherwise, you're sort of focused on these kind of milquetoast kind of songs with that squeaky voice, and I just wonder, how did this woman even get a recording contract? Well, let me tell you, if you can't sound good singing on top of Questlove, there is no hope for you, period. Well, Well, Well is the only good song on this record. I'll tell you what the problem is. You know, you're saying Betty Boop. She's trying to be Kylie Minogue. Mm. Not content to be typecast into that mold of neo-soul singer, where Adele is quite happy, and she's doing fine, and she's so much better than Amy Winehouse. I'm looking forward to that new Adele record. This record, they were trying to hedge Duffy's bets. Let's not just have her typecast as soul revival. Let's go in that Kylie Minogue area as well. Let's have a little bit hipper dance grooves. Let's not be wed to the 60s real instrumentation sound. I'm hearing a little more electronica here. Not a lot, just enough to try to get on the pop charts, and it stinks. It's trying to be everything to everyone at all times, and she doesn't have the voice to carry it off. On the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, although I like that song well, 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 overall this is a trash it record. What about you? I emphatically agree with everything you just said. How rare is that? That is de-rezzed from the French duo Daft Punk, the new Tron Legacy soundtrack. First, the movie. 1982, we had a movie come out called Tron with an iconic soundtrack, electro-symphonic soundtrack by Wendy Carlos, revered by electronic music aficionados around the world, and the movie had a huge, huge cult following as well. Now, years later, the Disney franchise is coming back with a sequel of sorts to that movie, and they have enlisted the electronic pop band of the last two decades to create the soundtrack for it. Daft Punk was the only choice, really, when you think about who are the superstars of electronic pop music right now. Well, clearly, the French duo of Guy Manuel de Homem, Christo, and Thomas Bangalder are it. They started out basically reinventing 
the music that they loved from the childhood rave scene in, in Europe. You know, going out to these raves as teenagers, seeing Detroit techno, Chicago house music, bringing it into the future, and giving it a strong visual flair as well. Not just a couple of DJs up there on stage spinning records, but bringing a whole uh, sound and light show to it as well. I think, you know, you can compare them very favorably to a band like Kraftwerk, you know, bringing sort of a flair that is visual as much as sonic to their innovations in the dance music medium. Now they're trying a whole nother bag of tricks here because it's not just about them and their synthesizers anymore. It's them plus an 85-piece orchestra creating this grandiose soundtrack for this grandiose movie. Uh, We're going to review the soundtrack in a minute, but let's play a track from it first. It is the title track from Tron Legacy from Daft Punk on Sound Opinions. is the title track to the film Tron Legacy and the album of the same name by Daft Punk on Sound Opinions. Greg, I gotta say, I was expecting much better things from this soundtrack project from Daft Punk than I actually got. We get a lot of music here, and it goes in a lot of different directions. There's a little bit of playful invention. There are times when they are uh, consciously trying to ape the uh, 8-bit sounds of vintage 80s video games. But it's dominated by the attempt to merge the classical orchestra with what Daft Punk has been doing, and I don't think that's really that successful. And it's also very ordinary. When you listen to the original Tron soundtrack today, or other soundtracks that Wendy Carlos did, uh, Clockwork Orange, for Mm -hmm. example, they still sound ahead of their time, and they sound like nothing else in popular music. That can't be said of Daft Punk. A lot of this could just breeze right by if you didn't know that it was Daft Punk. When you're watching the movie, it's like, yeah, so what? Okay, big deal. 
man, I expect them to knock it out of the park, and what we get is sheer mediocrity. Buy it, burn it, trash it. I can't say I'll ever listen to it again, so I think it's a trash it. I won't be as harsh as you are on that because I think there are several tracks on this record that I really like, but they're inevitably the more stripped-down kind of tracks, kind of tracks that you would have seen on a Daft Punk record independent of the movie. But they're working in the soundtrack tradition. And as you mentioned, you know, you look at the work of Wendy Carlos in movie soundtracks or people who are working in a similar vein. You know, look at John Carpenter's Escape from New York soundtrack, for example, Mm. or Vangelis on Blade Runner. Those soundtracks really stand up independently of the movies. And I don't think this one does. I think one of the reasons is, as you said, I think they've got all these new toys, you know, in their arsenal and they figure they got to use every one. Okay, we've got this 85-piece orchestra. We've got to use it. But I think that just gums up the works. I think it takes them away from their strengths. It sounds grandiose unnecessarily. It doesn't have the groove that we have come to associate with Daft Punk. Clearly, they're in new terrain here. Clearly, they're novices, and it sounds like it. This is not prime Daft Punk. I think the stuff that is closer to what they normally do is great, but the big soundtracky stuff doesn't work at all. It's a burn-it record for me. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip to the desert island and play a song from the jukebox that we cannot live without today. Greg, what have you got for us? Well, Jim, I've been thinking about the year 2010 a lot, doing my year-end pieces for the Tribune and for Sound Opinions as well. And one of the great events of the year was the comeback tour by a great metal band from the early 90s called Sleep. Getting a chance to see that band in action once again was a terrific moment for me this year. And it reminded me of that entire scene that they came out of in the late 80s, early 90s, that stoner rock scene of which Sleep was uh, one of the primary bands. The other two were Monster Magan out of the East Coast and Caius out of the Southern California desert, the progenitors of that desert rock, stoner rock scene out of Southern California. Who were Caius? Four guys uh, went on to greater and bigger things, at least two of them did. Josh Homme and Nick Oliveri went on to form a little band called Queens of the Stone Age that has done pretty well in the last 15 years. John Garcia, also in a band called Unita later on. Brent Bjork, the drummer, went on to play that instrument with Fu Manchu. So they've continued on in music, but I think some of their greatest work, maybe their greatest work, was with Caius in the early 90s. What was so great about these guys? Well, what they did was they brought back that trippy, psychedelic, and yet heavy sound of the early to mid-70s. If you were in a Midwestern high school in the mid-70s, you would have seen these guys in blue jeans and jean jackets with the vans in the parking lot, the shag carpets, the bongs in the back, the wallet chains. And, and they were listening to a particular kind of heavy music that these guys were channeling in the early 90s. Uh, they really appreciated that sound, that heaviness, but also that melody and that sense of you could take this and drive 100 miles down the desert highway and never want to stop. That's the sound that Caius came up with on their second album, Blues for the Red Sun, that came out in 1992. I'm going to play a track from it called Green Machine. You know, they were hippies too in a way. Basically what they're saying in this song is, 
I'm going to fight your green machine. I'm not going to let your corporate money corrupt me, man. I'm going to head out into the desert. I'm going to plug in, and I'm going to play for the kids <laughs> for free if I have to. But I don't want any part of your corporate culture. Green Machine from Caius on Sound Opinions. That was Green Machine by Caius on Sound Opinion's Greg Cott's Desert Island Jukebox pick for the week. And a fine one it was, Mr. Cott. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to play some of our favorite songs of the year as part of our Mixtapes for 2010 special. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our intern has been Julia Mullen-Gordon. Our producers are Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia. 
On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hi, this is uh, Dominic calling from Brooklyn, New York. Jim McGregor, love the uh, year-end show as always. Uh, good picks. Don't necessarily agree on the number one, but I'll tell you my number one band out of San Francisco, Moon Duo, released an amazing LP after a few EPs and things called Escape on the Woodsis label. Really great, really spaced out, trancey, heavy, psychedelic, kraut rock kind of thing. Really exemplified perfectly in the track in the trees just a long just brutal you know spacey jam that just kind of hooks me every time i hear it That's my number one record, the Moon Duo Escape. Thanks again for the show, and keep it up. Hi, John Payne. This is Kenny calling from New Jersey. I'm calling in response to your Best of 2010 show. You guys have to, have to check out my pick for the best of this year. It's John Grant's Queen of Denmark. It's an angry but equally fun as hell glam pop album, back by the Midlake. But the true highlight of this album is John Grant's lyrics. You guys cannot close out 2010 without hearing this song, Sigourney Weaver. It's so good, so good, so good. So I hope you guys dig it. I feel just like Sigourney Weaver When she had to kill those aliens And one guy tried to get Greg and Jim, this is Courtney from Washington, D.C., and as always, it was good to hear your list for your favorite albums in 2010, but actually, my favorite musical moment this year was the quote-unquote collaboration of the impassioned vigilantism meets autotune of Antoine Dobson and the Gregory Brothers that went viral on YouTube. Well, obviously, we have a rapist in Lincoln Park. He's climbing in your windows, he's snatching your people up, trying to rape them, so y'all need to hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your kids, hide your wife, and hide your husband, because they're raping everybody out here. Putting aside the many disturbing things this song said about our society, it was just a good, extremely catchy pop tune. And personally for me, you can't go wrong with adding hand claps to a song and ending it with an acapella breakdown. That is perfection. And I'm really enjoying Antoine Dotson's 15 Minutes of Fame anyway. I'm sure a lot of folks are thinking CeeLo had the song of the year and that song was great. But as far as I'm concerned, this was the best track of 2010. Great show, guys, and happy holidays. Thanks. Bye. You don't have to come and confess. We're looking for you. We gon' find you. We gon' find you. So you can run and tell that. Run and tell that. Run and tell that. Oh, boy. Oh, 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 boy. Uh, hello, Jim.
Jim and Greg. This is Derek from Dallas, Texas. I wanted to let you know that uh, one of my favorite uh, holiday songs is the Beach Boys' Santa's Got an Airplane. This song was available in bootleg form for years until 1998 when they released it on their Ultimate Christmas CD. It's strange, but it says Christmas to me. Uh, happy holidays to you guys. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.